Hello and welcome to the podcast version of Kenya's biggest conversation that's broadcast live every weekday morning from 6 to 10 a.m. on Spice FM. Hit subscribe for more thought-provoking conversations with your hosts Eric Latif, Ndu Oko and C.T. Muga and who's who of an eclectic mix of guests from the world of politics, policy, business and culture. This is a Situation Room podcast. Enjoy. And we now want to have a conversation about misinformation, specifically about misinformation on GMO. You know, when we uh, saw the cabinet say that we are going now, the cabinet approved the importation and consumption of GMOs in the country. There was all this information about GMO and all the reactions and all the coverage in the media. And now there is a report that has been released, a quantitative study by an organization called the Alliance for Science that has looked at how much coverage we gave GMO and GMOs in that period between October last year and January this year. They say they found 151, uh, no, 376 articles. 151 of them contained unchallenged negative misinformation about GMOs in Kenyan media. The Alliance for Science is in the studio and their executive director is called Dr. Sheila Ochuboju. Good morning. Good morning. Welcome to Kenya's Biggest Conversation. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, tell us about the Alliance for Science. Ah, yes. So, the Alliance for Science is a global science communication initiative. We are based in Kenya as uh, where our core team are for the Global South. But we also have another core team in Bangladesh. Um, our head office is in Boyce Thompson Institute on the Cornell campus, Ithaca, New York State. We have uh, coalitions in Latin America. We have team members in Europe. So we look at science communication across the board. Um, we're very well known for our work in challenging misinformation on GMOs um, because that has been ongoing for decades. Mm. Uh, ever since I left the laboratory, which was more than three decades ago, it actually hasn't changed much. Yeah. What are you doing in the lab when you were in the lab? <laughs> I was one of those early scientists that was doing ge genetic engineering even before we had uh, sequenced the genome. So I was in London University. I did my PhD. I left by 1996, went to Oxford and was working on um, integrated pest management systems. So we were then looking at disease tolerance, um, pest resistant crops. We didn't have the tools that we have now, we didn't have the techniques, but we knew that nature itself had answers for pest control. And we were learning about the genetic tools which nature has it in itself, and we were trying to recreate them. So now, three decades later, they've been recreated, they're easy to use to be applied, uh, but yet the uptake is not much more than it was when we were struggling to figure out what happened inside the, the, the crop. Why? Well, it's one of those things. Um, every technology has its... It has to come across conventional, every single technology, like uh, microwaves, like even cars. You know, you, you come across... People, as human nature, we like what we know. 
And so when the new comes along, there are very few early adopters and they have to push against the resistance of, of many things. So there's a fear, but there's also, I, I, I don't want to dismiss that fear as, mm. as just fear because food is part of our identity. Every culture, how we eat, who we eat with, what we do when we eat is part of how we affirm our humanity. Yeah. So it's not just about the food. So when we're, we're so, so our food is sacred in many ways. Um, so it's easier for us to adopt technologies that have to do with disease. Um, because yeah, we, we know we've got a disease, there's something entering, being injected into us, we don't know what it is, but we don't want to die. We accept that. But when it comes to food, we have a much more intimate connection with the food we eat. So we, we're much more cautious. So that's where a lot of the fear comes from when it comes to GMO food. Because when you look at a GMO technology, look at um, insulin. Mm. Most insulin is GMO because it has to be for, for, for the production. In the old days, um, insulin was developed from pigs. Mm. So, and, and that was actually quite dangerous because a lot of people had allergic effects. But now most people who are diabetic are injecting GMO insulin. Mm. And there's not a huge backlash against that. Um, uh, but there is when it comes to food. The question that one always asks when one talks about research is who funds that research? Okay. Who is behind it? Research is funded by many different entities. All of my research when I was in the UK was funded by government. I was a government scientist. A lot of the research here on GMOs is funded by government. So it's part of government national budget. So if you look at the work that is done here uh, in Kenyatta University, in Isipe, in Ilri, a lot of it is government funded. There are also private foundations that fund it. There are also individuals that fund it. So it's, it's a plethora of people who fund uh, um, the research. When we come to research on food, there is an African Union stipulation that actually most countries should take 10% of their GDP and put it towards that research. Mm -hmm. Of course they don't. <laughs> mm -hmm. And they haven't, even though they signed the declaration. But it's for us as citizens to ask government to push them to to adhere to the conventions that they signed mm. they should put their money where their mouth is and 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 fund researchers to look at the traits that are, they're interested in their country you know when that question is asked it always has a, a negative connotation in that the research might lean towards the desires of the funder and yet findings are just that findings it's a question of what then is in the public domain and what the public consumes. Because on the one hand, you're right, the governments, governments would want to understand whatever it is its citizens are consuming or interacting with. But if you're looking at the commercial world, if you're looking at the pharmaceutical world, they too would be interested in the same way. Because yes. if something was wrong with their product, the backlash would be catastrophic for yes. them and for their profit line. Yes. But then there's this little nexus, there's this little matter. The balancing act between the interests of the private foundations, the big pharma, governments, because many of the funding opportunities that governments have it is funding that goes through them it may not mm. necessarily be monies that they themselves have actually generated from their own coffers yes so in the middle of all this there's a citizen yes beyond findings such as the ones that you have how do citizens readily get to access the information that is there because there's a lot of it out there mm -hmm. how does one access it how is it made no, the question is how is it made accessible well 
most public funded research most research generally is publicly accessible these days uh online uh etc but we have to go the extra mile because then there is a gap between those i mean you don't just wake up in the morning and say oh gosh i feel like reading a research paper nobody <laughs> does <laughs> nobody does that <laughs> so it's our job to translate meaning and it's our job to create an appetite for you to know more so that you can make better decisions about your life we do it more proactively when it comes to health, like we did it very proactively during COVID to, to explain to you why you should take the vaccine, where you could go and get it, what it means, all of those things. So it's our job to translate the research to respond to your question. So we should do that um, as um, uh, non-profits. And there are a lot of non-profits that do that. Um, but there are also a lot of activist organizations who also do that, um, translate research based on whatever they are set up to do, um, or based on their own philosophical or ideological uh, standpoint. But now, all across the world, governments are putting in a component of science communication in the research funding. So at least 10 or 15% of your money has to be spent on science communication. Mm -hmm. You can't just publish a paper. You must like go to a community project or something. You must talk to the radio and TV. Scientists don't like it. They haven't ever really liked it. <laughs> mm -hmm. We try to train them and, and, and they do that. But that was the only way to push them yeah. to say the public funded this they have a right to know what you've been doing for 10 years you know before you bring it to the market sure i mean the genetically modified organisms conversation has been you know it's it comes to the fore it goes back to the burner it comes back um then more recently in kenya it has shown up once again yeah. And even as you speak about previously when there was, you know, insulin gotten from pigs and then today when we are looking at synthetic insulin, it is a GMO substance. Yeah. Now, when again the conversation came to Kenya, there is a lot of misinformation yes. about what dangers lie in the consumption of GMOs, if any at all. Mm -hmm. So where has this in misinformation come from? because usually they say misinformation will come from somewhere where there is an element of fact. What's happening here? Okay, so if you look at um, uh, misinformation, like a lot of fears about cancer, um, they, they uh, link to maize. So uh, we know that there is a substance called aflatoxin, which mm. is in maize, um, and that has been linked to higher rates of cancer. But funnily enough, GMO technology reduces aflatoxin. So there are um, maize that are, have reduced aflatoxins and actually safer. So, um, and cassava has cyanide um, in it. And so people, the many people eat cassava and die because it has cyanide, which is there as a pest control. It's a natural pest control. And so there, I guess there's an embedded fear that knowing that certain crops have certain traits that could kill you. Mm. And, and we've known that for generations. And funnily enough, even though scientists have been working to reduce those traits, those fears remain and then get linked to GMO in quite the opposite way, as you see what I mean. So, so, so you, you know, there is you have to be cautious about your food. There are dangers in foods. You have to know what you're eating. And and when you look at GMOs, you're thinking, well, I don't know what this is, so it must be the dangerous thing. So a lot of it comes from the fact that we know that there are dangers out there in nature. Mm -hmm. 
A lot of it also comes from the fact that there, as I said, there is a natural fear of the unknown and that vacuum is often filled by um, those that don't, those that want to to keep us in safe, what they think are safe spaces. So uh, religious leaders are often um, speaking in, 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 in public. I've, I've heard here in, in different fora in Kenya saying, oh, so-and-so died. Well, we've told you about this GMO. You need to be careful, <laughs> you mm. know? And so they make, they associate the death with the GMO just like that in flippant comments. Mm. Politicians make jokes which don't come off very well and, and link um, the technology with death. So we have our own natural fears of death. We have our own natural fears of not knowing what we're consuming and the overwhelming choices. Mm. And then we associate, it's very easy for us to associate them with when somebody uh, adds a, a negative comment, it's easy for us to take that up and believe it's true. But is there no link? Is there really, I mean, from what you're saying, from a scientific point of view and to the social judgment that yes. is made often is there no link or, or let me ask it in the positive is there a link between GMOs. this gmo food and the disease that people often speak of i can categorically say there is no link between gmos and disease no proven link scientifically of hundreds of studies that have been done in europe which uh, GMOs were uh, adopted in Europe over 25, 30 years ago. So there have been many longitudinal studies as to so beyond one generation. So there is no clear link between GMOs and disease. There was once a paper that was subsequently discredited mm -hmm. um, that linked it to, to, to different diseases. But, you know, these things come up in science all the time. Mm -hmm. We had in, in, in Europe a lot of uh, scares around the uh, measles, MMR vaccine, measles, non-trubella, the, the childhood vaccinations, where there was a paper that linked it to autism. Mm -hmm. And for nearly 20 years, we've been trying to get mothers back to immunizing their children seeing a rise of measles and children still dying of these diseases that had gone because it was linked to a paper that was then um, 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 taken down discredited you know there are two terms that are often associated with gmos mm -hmm. crossbreeding and selective breeding yes now if i look at those two terms They've been in existence almost for as long as mankind has been in existence. Absolutely. Uh, royal families, when they were such beings, crossbred because they understood that inbreeding uh, brought about undesired consequences. Absolutely. So, would you say that these we've been involved in GMOs for as long as we've been alive? Nature in itself. The technology was learned from nature. Nature mm. in itself has been selectively selecting out traits um, for all kinds of reasons. So genetic modification, crossbreeding is how we learned from nature that if we saw desirable traits, we tried to crossbreed, we tried to selectively breed. Farmers have been doing that from the beginning of time. We've been doing that. So it's only when we now look deeper at understood the genome and understood where we could find those traits and could we use a molecular scissors to cut this out and put it in there. We became more precise in that. So genetic modification is precision applied. It's a technology that 
adds precision to selective um, um, and crossbreeding, natural uh, plant breeding technologies. That, that's not to say it replaces it, because we only do it for certain crops, for certain things. Um, we still every year have all kinds of hybrid varieties of maize, of rice. We're still planting those um, because many of them are highly efficient and we, we, we want that to happen. But with the acceleration of climate change, we're finding that selective crossbreeding, which takes 10 to 15 years, we just don't have that luxury of time anymore to wait for the best variety that will confer what we want so we're, 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 we're applying it to the things that are most so strenuous to us you're helping nature along <laughs> we're learning i don't think we're helping nature along <laughs> i think we're learning from nature <laughs> and we as human beings have always learned from nature to survive that's how agri agriculture came along we're always learning something from nature to help us as a human race to survive we never get ahead of nature. That just never happens. <laughs> no, we don't. But you see, the, the reason why even we're having this discussion today, it isn't because of what we are saying mm -hmm. right now. Yes. The content that we are right now engaged in. It is the commercial element that is associated with GMOs. That's true. There's an, a certain in-your-face approach to it where you are actually not informed. You are battered with it. Really? Yes. And there's a, a down-your-throat approach to it whether you can swallow or not, that one often sees. For instance, if you're talking about something that is dear to the hearts and stomachs of many people in this country, maize. Mm -hmm. The moment you mention maize and you throw in all the negative elements that are float out there regarding GMOs, and then you read the stories about GMOs and those who are behind it, the commercial elements, the loud noise is about the commercialization of it mm -hmm. now when you bring in commercialization unfortunately you big pharma comes to mind mm -hmm. now when they come to mind and the practices that they've involved or big industry yes now all those elements come into play and suddenly gmo doesn't look that good anymore i understand that i understand that because um you're not looking at a technology on its own. Every technology is within a context, within a social context, an economic context, a political context. And so you're looking at where where does where do developing countries sit in the economic world and so you're looking at the power of corporations you're looking at the capitalist world system and you're looking at that power dynamic so often when people say i'm against gmos what they're saying is i'm against this power dynamic where mm. i I don't necessarily have the power to produce something and i only um ha i i only have to acquire money from the same system and go back and take the choices that are offered to me. We saw that um, with vaccines um, and, and it was painful because we didn't even realize how vulnerable we were that only, we only produced 1% of our vaccines and then we had COVID and then we could not even for love nor money buy the vaccines that we needed because of an economic world system that shut us out and that power dynamic is where the mistrust of big industry comes from. So I'm not saying that that is not real, the iniquities of the global um, corporation and private sector. We are the global south. We're developing, we, we, we have a power dynamic that doesn't favor us in many things. But here's the, here's the thing. 
we are trying to get to a point, especially with this technology, which is affordable, where our scientists are able to do it for themselves, where we are able to develop the traits for ourselves, commercialize them for ourselves for the reasons we want, so that it's not about big industry. It is about our own scientists and our own um, um, uh, production system. We can get to that. For the first time, the technology is cheap enough for us to get to that. The history of how we got here was when the technology wasn't, uh, we, we, we didn't have, we didn't have the sequences machine, we couldn't do the research, we could only consume the technology. This is a different space three decades later. And so those fears, real, they are real fears because things happened that, 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 that uh, disenfranchised us in many ways. This is the time for us to leapfrog using a technology so that we don't have the conversation about equity again. How do you actually fight? How do you combat or how do you bring into this fold of discussion tradition that people have held on to for the longest possible time and which they believe has worked for them, especially with regards to food? Because where our traditions often are most embedded is in what we eat. Absolutely. You know, I'm, I'm so fascinated by that. And it's the part of science that I think we need to do more work on. I want us to make more explicit the uh, embedded knowledge that we call it indigenous knowledge, but once you give it that name, it's, it somehow means something else. But the embedded <laughs> knowledge that we have in our communities, I'd like to raise that up. I feel that, especially when it comes to food and all our practices, a lot of our rituals around food had a scientific and underlying knowledge around that. The foods you ate when you uh, been, were circumcised um, for, for young men had certain nutrients you needed or mothers when they're lactating or at different seasons in your life. There's certain foods which your grandmothers would say now is when you need to eat this, you need mm -hmm. to eat it for seven days. Yeah. Like when I had my children, my, my mother would come, you know, she'd give me the pepper soup, you know, because she knew the antioxidants and, <laughs> You know, to flush it. And, and she'd say that. She wouldn't tell me the science of it, but there were micronutrients that I needed at that stage. So, so those are valuable and rich traditions. And I think when we begin to unearth the science of that, perhaps we can respect it more, perhaps we can transfer that knowledge to, to more and more communities. Mm. And so my point is tradition and science are not opposite. So we, we embed our science within our traditions so that they can carry through without too much explanation. You don't need a PhD to do something if it's your natural culture and your tradition and your ritual. You'll do it. Mm. Um, so, I, I, so I think it's important for us to begin to understand that. And even in our breeding, plant breeding, and, uh, and what, what do we grow, why, where, um, it's based on our understanding of who we are as a people, where we live. Like um, a little known fact is that we in West Africa, many of us are, um, are lactose intolerant. We don't have a huge dairy industry. We just don't have a taste for all the, we don't know that it's because part of our DNA actually just doesn't really like this. <laughs> but it's, it's embedded in how we live, the foods we choose, the way, the cultures that we are, have. 
So my point is culture, tradition and science uh, are not exclusive. They're all together. We wouldn't have got here without our cultures mm. and we wouldn't have got here without good science. Mm. And all the knowledge in with it. Mm. 28 minutes to 8. Time for us to take a break. Dr. Sheila Ochukboju is the executive director for Alliance for Science. And she's here because she is giving us a new perspective on GMO. She's actually uh, going to be telling us about this study that they conducted between October last year and January this year on media and how much misinformation was actually being published and shared on GMOs. Why did we have this kind of misinformation and who qualifies it as misinformation? This is the Situation Room the only way to start your day there's a quantitative study by the alliance for science which says in the summary in a study of gmo media articles published in kenya by kenyan media between october 2022 and january this year we found 151 out of a total of 376 articles contained unchallenged negative misinformation about gmos this equates to 40 percent of media coverage by volume in kenya promoting negative misinformation about gmos only three percent of articles contained pro gmo misinformation okay you'll tell us about that now the entire report actually looks at uh, the kind of uh, articles that we're talking about articles with no misinformation only 47 percent unchallenged misinformation 40 percent Challenge misinformation 8%, fact checking articles 2%, articles containing misleading images 4%. And uh, then you've also even given, go on ahead to give some of the headlines that appeared. A GMO maize is harmful to your health, Kenyans warned. Africa Science News in November last year, Dr. Daniel Maingi of the Food Rights Alliance stated that GMO technology contributes to cancer, especially breast cancer, thus insisted on non-GMO food. Another article posted on, um, published in the Star, resist GMOs, it's slow death, Ekuru Okot. This was uh, one that was quoting Ekuru Okot. It says, you don't feed people poison in the pretext of solve, saving their lives, the politician said in a statement on Twitter. A, another article on the People Daily, seeds of discord as immune warns of GMO health risks. So all these stories that you're saying were published and they had a lot of unchallenged misinformation. Mm -hmm. So let's start first of all by qualifying what is unchallenged misinformation, what is challenged misinformation and what is pro-GMO misinformation. Okay, so unchallenged misinformation is um, some of those quotes that you had, that you read, where they are said to link to health risk. And if you know how it happens in editorials, usually somebody will say that's not true. And then the next day they'll put um, some kind of update. And so you, you, the public have a right to challenge it. And we encourage scientists who have done the research to read the articles and to get in touch with the newspaper and say this is actually not true mm. um uh, you, 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 you here's a study that shows what you said is misinformation um so that's how to challenge okay. uh pro gmo uh, misinformation is so we we don't want to make claims that uh, are beyond the scope of the research so they there's there's certain traits which are bred into maize which is drought tolerant it can end it that's what it is it's mm. drought tolerant or pest resistant and that's the scope of what it was bred to do and um and so if you it's it's not a it's not 
you can't make a statement like uh, if you if you eat GMO foods, that's the you become food secure. Um, this is the end of hunger, end of poverty. That that's not true because <laughs> that, that 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 would be a glaring uh, generalization. What we have been, what we we try to say is give a measured um, and factual information mm. that there are options that farmers can have. Now, uh, drought-tolerant maize is one option. There are also hybrid varieties which are better for your soil type. There are also other inputs that you have. So, in fact, so if, if you have the, the seed itself and you don't do other things, you don't fertilize, you don't um, do all the other things you have to do, you don't weed, you're not going to necessarily get a better crop. So you still have to do other things. What it does is give you a head start in one particular area. Mm. So you have to be conservative in how you explain the benefits as well. So we're, we're, we're not going to oversell the benefits. Mm. We're, we're simply offering choices which we ask mm. uh, people to consider. What do you see here in this report? I'm sure you've conducted such other studies in, in other parts of the world. Is it any different from what you see elsewhere? 40% of unchallenged negative misinformation about GMOs published in Kenyan media. It is because the average that we see and we measure um, not just for GMOs but for all other types of science misinformation, we measure every month. It it usually is around 9%. It doesn't go beyond 9%. So 40% is significant. 9%, 3%, 4%, 5%, you know. So 40% was glaring. And then what we also measure is what we call share of voice. So we say um, there's this misinformation, but how, how much of the global media is listening to this? And Kenya is like, the number two in the world for anti-GMO. So it, the whole world is listening to this misinformation. So the impact is even greater <laughs> because your share of voice is higher than many mean? other. What do you mean Kenya is number mm, two? two? Number two, meaning that anti-GMO sentiment that is vocal and verbal and we can measure on in media monitoring, Kenya is num the, the number two country in terms of anti-GMO uh, in the media with misinformation. So actively putting out their misinformation mm. that the world is consuming. So that's that's concerning. Does this come from, because I mean, there's two ways of spreading this, inf well, uh, several ways of spreading yes. this information. But if we're looking at then what comes out of Kenya, are we talking about sentiment that comes from individuals that then caucus on social media, for example? Exactly. Or are we talking about information that has been published in, uh, you know, publication mainstream. media, Both. mainstream media, for example? Mm. What are we talking about? Here? So we do, we do, we do the measurable stuff which is social media and mainstream media so mm. our report has all that data that we can pick that up using okay. our analytical tools what we can't pick up are um so what, what, what I had to say to the researchers when it first came to my desk is that, yes, I know what this looks like, but this is a very vocal minority. Mm. This is not representative. So when you say 40%, it's not that 40% of Kenyans are saying this. Mm. Um, it's, it's a very vocal minority around uh, the Kenyans on Twitter, on Instagram, on Facebook, and are constantly putting those articles. So it's not necessarily representative of the country sentiment. So we need to go back down and listen better. Mm -hmm. And so that's partly why I've been here for such a long time. 
we're listening to farmers' voices. We're going to we're we're doing demonstration plots. We're bringing the farmers. We're asking them, "What do you feel about GMOs?" And mostly, they're saying, "I don't even know what that is." Exactly. And <laughs> they're like, "There's such a thing that I can get higher yields. Where is it? Where can I get the seeds?" Farmers were generally not the ones involved in this because mm. farmers are used to, and also they're not even the ones that are necessarily afraid of the multinationals because they're they are used to buying seeds every year um, they just ask is it affordable I don't want one that I can't afford mm. and they ask questions like how many times do I have to spray oh I don't have to spray so much okay so that will save me money if if I and they can do the maths mm -hmm. um, how, what is the yield per acre and and how much will I get at, at the end of harvest so farmers were were saying completely different things so what we're trying to do now is to amplify farmers' voices so that now we can measure uh, really what is Kenya saying. Sure. <laughs> Dr. Chubod, the thing is that uh, the anti-GMO sentiment has not only come from people on Twitter or people in social media or people who've published in mainstream. It has come from scientists yes. as well yes. who have looked at sequencing and said that what you're doing is that you have reintroduced you have gone outside of a species specification yes. with the makeup of GMO and that is where the danger lies scientists yeah. who sat in this chair yeah. who said that is what is actually going on and that is what is dangerous in terms of information yeah. it's also coming from a scientific point uh, of view how then do you look at this if somebody's gone into if somebody's gone into a lab and has seen the science somebody who counters it also has seen the science where is the where is the meeting point if there is one well there is because the the, the beauty of science is we can argue but there is always a consensus point and the consensus point comes when you say uh, where are the research papers and what are they overwhelmingly saying? So I can say the GMOs are safe because over 30 years, the research papers that are peer-reviewed and published, this is what they say. That doesn't mean that there will not be some scientists who say, well, I disagree. Mm -hmm. But you, you look at the volume of research in different settings across the world, in different crops, and then you say, the evidence, what does the data prove? And you get to a consensus point. Mm -hmm. It's like that in everything. It's like it was like that with climate change. Climate change is real, it's not real. Research, research, research. 20 years later, the overwhelming evidence from all spheres of research is it is real, it's not in our heads. And therefore, you can still believe that it's not real, but if you want to look at data, I can use data to say that. Now, but the point that you made earlier, which is where the fears come in that you're crossing species barriers, that you know, this is not natural because. You're crossing one species. And that you will eliminate an, a parent seed, for example, with GMOs. N well, no. But first, let me, let's get to yeah. the crossbreeding. Because this is what... The whole of nature is based on, on, on crossbreeding. This is how genetic diversity is, bu is built. You're introducing new traits from, from different places. And so nature itself has many examples of moving from one species to another. We learnt that it was possible from nature and we began to use those tools. And so it's, not, it's true that you're introducing a foreign DNA into a sequence. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean that there's a danger. Okay. The truth is you're doing that because you may have a trait 
that is um, stronger in one species and you want that trait in here. And then you, it then becomes expressed. What we have done is test it for generations and say, how does it show up hmm. four generations later? Does it mutate? Does it cause uh, other epigenetic factors? Um, my point is the data and the evidence shows that it is safe. So, yes, it is crossing species barrier, but that does not mean that that's a danger. The evidence... Could it that be does too not early, Doctor? Sorry. Could it be too early to actually tell whether you're doing this? It is not. Many years ago, they'd have told us, well, the Industrial Revolution, I mean, we're just going into the natural thing and getting fossil fuel and burning it and producing energy and there's no harm i mean we can see it's we are not creating anything new we're just taking what nature is providing us now we are talking about oh those things that we've been doing for all those many hundreds of years they've actually been destroying our planet is it possible that several hundred years from now we'll be looking back and saying you know what we did with tinkering with nature's own natural way of doing things affected us I hear you. And um, so science doesn't just, um, this science is not just <clears throat> going forward, it's also looking back. The starting point of any scientific inquiry is looking at the volume of knowledge that was done before you were here and, and then taking it incrementally to the next step. So on the question of um, how much do we know? Um, what I can say is that the first commercial GMO crops came out in 1994, 95, that time. And that that was even before we'd fully sequenced so there were still some unknowns that we couldn't know but now we have fully sequenced genomes um we've been able to test epigenetic factors and because of the way that we're able to test we don't have to wait in the ways that we used to in uh 10 20 years to see how it shows up um in in different contexts we can actually create um in confined field trials and model what this can look like we have to do that and that's what we do with climate and all of that that's why we can say you know if we don't get to a 1.5 degree well we're all going to burn by 2050 we can say that because we can model based on the data we have here of course with variables and margins of error mm. but that's what science is about so my point is it's not new it may be this conversation is new in kenya in terms of commercialization but we're talking about in the early 90s mm. this has been so the conversation we're having here now is a conversation that was had in other countries in the 90s sure. it is not more advanced okay are you able to look at um other countries as we speak of yes and look at then what their consumption is of gmos uh, compared to naturally grown foods? Yes, of course. I mean, um, the, the biggest um, consumers were the US and the Latin American countries, 70, 80%. And even now in Europe, 70% uh, of uh, imported feeds mm -hmm. is GMO. Mm -hmm. and, and what you're finding here is that the livestock industry is, is being decimated actually because of this uh, GMO ban. It was about 30 millers closed because 70 or 80% of the soybean and the maize that is used for feed is GM, GM um, uh, feed. Mm. So to find the non-GMO is very expensive. Now with the Ukraine war, you actually can't um, get that, um, that feed. 
which translates then to the price of milk and the price of eggs and all the things on your table is because you can't the the price of feed because you can't use GM feed um, is, is is so high. Now, even for countries where people, a lot of activists talk about uh, in the EU, this is banned. You know, they don't have they don't have GM, but they do have feed. Mm. So, so it is still in the food chain. The same countries that 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 because they have an abundance of food and their problem is not hunger their problem is food waste mm. at which point you have lots of choice you can mm. choose to eat fully organic and also you are in the global food system you you've, you've managed to keep your cost down for your consumer so that all their choices are affordable we don't have that luxury we don't have the luxury of choice we don't have affordability and so when you take out um gm as a choice you are actually relegating swathes of the population to hunger. Mm. You know, there's a price being paid for this GMO conversation. Mm -hmm. And the price tag falls squarely at the, at the doorstep of scientists and those who produce GMO. Because if over the years you've gone about doing your thing and you believed it's a wonderful thing and people do not know or understand how wonderful this wonderful thing is, we will nitpick and look at areas that we think are controversial, which essentially may be areas we don't fully understand because yes. it hasn't been fully explained. Moving forward. I totally agree with you. I take that on board. We take the blame fully and squarely. We haven't done well. We need to do better as scientists, as a scientific community. We speak to ourselves. We continue to, the, the, you know, it, it's, it's a very ivory tower mentality and it's no longer acceptable. Um, when I was a scientist in the lab, um, we were trained at that time to do science communication simply because of the, it was so controversial. We were the first people doing this sort of GMO um, research in Oxford. And so we were given some basic science communication training you know if you meet somebody and they ask you to explain this this is here yeah, this is what well not so much you sell them <laughs> it's we had to counter the very uh compelling narratives and visuals of greenpeace you mm. know with the the phantoms and the syringes and so <laughs> where do you start a conversation when that is the backdrop of it so we had to at least get people engaged with let's what is it you're afraid of? What can I tell you? And and have create a space for people to hear. So we di we didn't do enough, and we still are not doing enough. But we as Alliance for Science, that's where our major investment goes in. We train scientists, and we're training scientists in the newer technology that's coming upstream: gene editing. Mm. So apart from genetic modification, there's gene editing, which. In some sense, um, the public uh, don't have the same feeling about because it uh, not, doesn't. There's not an introduction generally of a foreign DNA. So you're looking at what is within the genome and how do you manipulate what is within the genome of crop. Mm. But it's still new technology. It's more or less the same techniques. It's mm. just that you don't cross species. So we are. We don't want to make the mistake we made with um, GMOs, and we're training scientists on gene editing um, to explain it. We have toolkits. We're investing in that because actually, what we find is not anti-GMO sentiment. It's questions. I don't understand it. It was the same with vaccine hesitancy. Mm. People are like, oh, they're refusing to take this vaccine. No, I don't know enough to make a decision. Yeah. Tell me more. Tell me more. And when I get to the place I think I know enough, I'll make a decision. Mm. So 
it was our it is our job to bridge the gap and the, the impetus and the onus is on us does the alliance for science also encourage those naysayers who are also in the science field do you engage with them yes we do well, well because we have to um but we actually even want to do that more proactively so the split has been it's a what is what I got the false dichotomy of pro or anti as if those are only choices of um, either you go the agroecological way or you go the GMO way and a country <laughs> has to choose between those two things. So we do actually now um, uh, go into conferences about agroecology and have conversations about um, uh, uh, what those choices actually mean. So what we want is to not have these um, heightened sentiment and and these false dichotomies to make you never have just two choices in anything almost mm. you know you always have more than two anybody who ever pre, you know s s sets it up like that you you really need to question what why they're doing that okay. you know there's this sorry no. I was going to ask because if we're saying that this is misinformation they're actually representing not just if if it is misinformation as you say it's representing the fear of people that we find that oftentimes people are going to express something because there is a fear, latent or otherwise, about what it will do with the ingestion mm. of this. It, it is a fear. There is and for fear. me, the same thing you've just said in terms of, well, I don't know about it, so mm. I, I want to know, so I can know if I can take it in or not. Yes. Is there enough in terms of information about the true state, not backed by funding, not yep. trying to yep. go into a particular direction? Is there enough information out there for people? Well, I think this is part of why we train the media. You are the fourth estate. You are the ones that are supposed to listen and you, you, you have those channels. So we do a lot of media training all around the world so that you can then look at what are the questions your audience and your listeners are asking and where can you point them to. They don't have to just come to us. They, they have to come to you too and, and you can actually answer them. So... That's why I'm here today, to engage with you. And that's why we published that report, so that we could engage with the media. At the end of the day, we will go back to the lab or to our communities, but you remain in, in, in society. In space. In, in, yeah, translating. People. Dr. Sheila, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you so much. Dr. Sheila Ochikboju is the Executive Director of the Alliance for Science. We've been talking about science of GMOs and misinformation around GMO. How about that? You made it to the end of today's podcast. You clearly ooze stamina. Guess what? Just hit subscribe at Standard Media Podcast, Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts from. Our podcasts drop daily. From me and the team, catch you next time. Bye-bye.